You're listening to TIP. Uh, the real big driver here is the, the the interest rates, right? The interest rates and how much house prices have increased over the last couple of years. It's really pricing out a lot of people out of market. And something else that a lot of people aren't talking about is the fact that interest rates have increased so much. Now a lot of people are almost locked into their homes. On today's episode, I bring back Joseph Hogue, who is an author and personal finance expert, where he now runs a YouTube channel, Let's Talk Money, with a community of over 500,000 subscribers. In this episode, we talk all about how to decide whether it makes sense to rent or buy a home, how to think through this decision in this high interest rate environment, and Joseph goes over all of the important factors that we need to take into consideration when making this decision. He also shares his top three dividend stock picks that offer very attractive yields and goes over why he likes REITs and how they typically perform in this environment and so much more. I've been wanting to cover this topic for a while now. It's a really interesting time to think about it with how high rates are. But at the same time, as we've heard from previous guests, there could be an opportunity of a lifetime to buy a home in the next couple of years. And so I think this is a great conversation to have in our back pocket when the time comes. All right, let's jump into the episode. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko, and on today's episode, I am joined by Joseph Hoke. Joseph, welcome to the show. Rebecca, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for coming back on to do another episode. I've really been wanting to do an episode on how to think through renting versus buying a home. And I saw that you did a YouTube video on this topic very recently, so I thought it'd be perfect to have you on and help us think through this decision. So kind of to help set the stage for today's discussion, I thought it'd be helpful to first go through some of the latest updates and indicators on the housing market that would be useful for this rent versus buy argument. Yeah, yeah. I think, of course, everybody says real estate is local, right? And there is some truth to that. But I think there's some of those big picture ideas that we can talk about that can really help people wherever you're at make that decision and make it smartly. Mm-hmm. Because we have global listeners. I'm from Canada. We have some listeners overseas, but majority of our listeners are in the US. So we can keep it kind of on a high level, but it'll still be enough to help inform everyone on how to think through this decision. So I recently had a guest on. Her name was Danielle DiMartino Booth, and she was talking about how a lot of the housing market indicators right now are pointing to it being worse than 08, 09. But she also mentioned that in the next year or two, this will be almost a once in a lifetime opportunity for millennials to buy a home. So I was just wondering if you could maybe walk us through some of the latest housing market indicators that are most useful to think through this decision. Sure. Well, I don't necessarily see anything like we saw in 2008, 2009 with that kind of level of house pricing crash, right? Uh, We have seen 
you know, upwards of 20, 30, 40% increases in home prices over the last couple of years. And, and something like that just isn't natural, right? That's not what you see over the long term for housing, uh, you know, for residential real estate, because it follows a pretty predictable path as far as supply and demand, right? You've got the supply where construction is uh, building new homes regularly, but they're also bringing some homes off the market as homes are being replaced and converted. And then you've got that pretty predictable demand from new home buyers. So it's uh, generally, you can generally follow the path of home price growth over decades. And uh, you just don't see that 20 or 30 or 40% increase uh, year over year. So it's a lot of what we saw in the run up to that housing bubble, but we're not necessarily so over leveraged like we were. We haven't extended those kinds of mortgages to people with no income, no jobs, those kinds of things, those no mortgages that we saw back in the housing bubble. And people aren't quite as extended, you know, in their own debts and that. So uh, while we might see 10, 15% decrease in housing prices at the most, really, probably over the next year or two, we're nowhere near that level that we saw in the housing bubble. Uh, the real big driver here is the, the, the interest rates, right? The interest rates and how much house prices have increased over the last couple of years. It's really pricing out a lot of people out of market. And something else that a lot of people aren't talking about is the fact that interest rates have increased so much. Now, a lot of people are almost locked into their homes. Uh, I know about half of the mortgages out there in the U.S. anyway are at mortgage rates below what they are currently, right? So you get to the question of how do you sell your home if your only alternative is going to be to buy another home at a much higher mortgage interest rate? So a lot of people are kind of locked in place there. And that's really having a, a deciding factor on supply as well. So the supply piece is super interesting because as interest rates are this high, you would expect kind of a natural pressure downwards on home prices. But in Canada, we have very little supply compared to usual. And especially in certain regions in like hot markets like Toronto and Vancouver, it's a bit different. But it's interesting to see how tight supply is. So we might not see a decrease in price as much as maybe we would expect. Is that the same case in the U.S. or is it a different story? Sure, that's what we're seeing. And what I've found really interesting is, yeah, some of the differences between the international differences. I know uh, some areas in Canada, the prices have started to come down quite a bit. Uh, New Zealand housing prices have started crashing, actually. And in the U.S., we are we're not seeing lower prices just yet. We are seeing slower growth. So whereas last year, uh, home prices increased maybe 18% on a year-over-year basis, this year, so far, it's only uh, growing maybe 7% or 6%. And possibly, you know, over the next year, they'll, they will start to come down a little bit. But you're right. It's that supply, really, that is the big picture here. And one is just the construction. You know, after the 2008 crash, then a lot of home builders just slammed their foot on the brake, right? They were not building the same number of apartments, same number of single family homes, uh, because they did get so burned so badly in the housing bubble crash. So we haven't, over the last 10 years, we really haven't had the construction of a single family real estate or residential real estate that we needed to fulfill that that demand, just that natural increase in demand that you see every year from new home buyers. So there is that part of the supply. The other part of supply is that people just, as I said, people just aren't putting their homes up for sale. A lot of people are locked into their interest rate. They don't want to move. They don't want to sell their home and move if they're going to have to take out a new mortgage that is at an interest rate that they can't afford. So uh, you've got a much lower supply. And of course, that is affecting that supply demand balance and keeping prices pretty well stable. Mm -hmm. I live in one of the, it's probably the third expensive place to live in Canada, right by Vancouver. And I know a lot of people were selling their homes because they were at the highest prices, but then they couldn't find any place to rent after. 
And so it's that weird situation where you sell at the top of the market, but then rent has also gone up so much, which we'll get into. So yeah, it's just a really interesting market right now. It is. And it will be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, like I said, a lot of people are just being priced out of the market, almost a, uh, an entire generation for the next couple of years being priced out of the market. If you take the median home price of about $440,000 here in the United States and just the change in interest rates, interest rates have more than doubled over the last year. They started the year 2022 out right around 3% for a 30 year fixed mortgage. And now they're, now they're close to 7%. They've actually hit 7%. Uh, last couple of weeks, they've come down a little bit, but uh, just that change in interest rates adds another $1,000 a month just in interest alone on that median home price. Uh, so that's uh, that's really priced a lot of people out of the market. In fact, a personal story, my wife, my family, we recently moved from Columbia to Tampa, to Florida, right? And we'd been stalking the, the housing market for the last two years, waiting to get a visa for our adopted daughter uh, before we could move. And just it's just been excruciating watching those home prices go up and watching the interest rate go up. You know what we could have bought back in two thousand and you know two thousand and twenty when we wanted to move is far and far different from what we can afford now. Yeah, I've also been itching to buy a home for the past year or so now, but it just seems like I'm probably going to be waiting a little bit longer just because it does not make economic sense in this environment. And so I do want to start getting into this, how to think through this decision. And I think a good place to start is the pros and cons. So can you kind of walk through on a high level some of the pros and cons that we should think about when assessing the rent versus buy decision? Sure. Well, it's, uh, you know, there's always the numbers that you have to consider, you know, how much is it going to cost to to rent versus what you buy. Uh, one of the big pros of renting is, of course, that flexibility, right? You can always, uh, you know, if you don't like your neighbors, you can always move. There's the uh, the cost to maintenance costs as well in renting. If your water heater breaks, then uh, then you just call the landlord and it's their responsibility rather than having to drain your own bank account. The pros of buying, then there, there are some studies that show that that kind of stability, you know, uh, staying in in a single house in a single neighborhood for you know decades, years, or even a decade is good for families and people that that own their homes tend to be happier on different measures. Whether that's you know a fact, different factors or not, uh, nobody's really been able to say yet. But you know, you are building up equity uh, for a lot of people. I th- I find the biggest pro of buying a home. And this is this is beyond the numbers, right? Because sometimes you look at the numbers and they make absolutely no sense, right? Which we can get into as far as the the actual numbers of renting versus buying. But beyond that, so many people just need that forced savings plan that is a, a home mortgage. So many people, they you know, even if you look at the numbers and it makes more sense to just invest that down payment and pay rent rather than to buy a home, then so many people, you know, they would just blow the down payment or make bad investment decisions and things like that. So it's nice to have that forced savings plan where you're building up that equity over time in a home. Uh, of course, the cons to that are you could be buying it at exactly the wrong time and uh, and see your, your home not appreciate like it should. Yeah, I think those are all great points. And to really think about this decision of renting versus buying, I think Sometimes people compare it to the total cost of rent, which is pretty straightforward. So when you think of the total cost of renting, it's your rent plus utilities if you pay those plus renters insurance. But then 
to think about the total cost of buying a home or home ownership, it's not as straightforward. Some people might just think of the mortgage costs, property taxes, but what are, I guess, all of the costs that you would consider that would make up the total economic or financial costs that we should consider and compare that to the renting cost? Sure, sure. Well, you've got the maintenance cost, which is a big part of owning a home versus renting. As I said, you know, if you're, uh, if something breaks in your home, in your rental, then you call up the landlord and it's their responsibility. Whereas maintenance costs uh, generally are going to cost you one to 2% a year on the value of a home. And that's, that doesn't mean that it's going to be relatively smooth each year. You know, you're not, not going to have one or 2% each year, but you might have, have almost nothing. Uh, very, very little for one year to the next, but then you have to replace the roof. Then you have to replace, uh, you know, have to repair the foundation, things like that. So those big expenses that you have to plan for and you really do need to budget for because, you know, if you don't have something saved up in your budget for those, when they do come around, they can really push you into some bad financial decisions and bad, uh, bad financial scenarios. So you've got the maintenance costs, you've got the property taxes, you've got the interest obviously on the uh, home mortgage. A lot of that can be deductible on your taxes if you do, you know, itemize your taxes and things like that. So there's a savings there, but it's still an extra cost on to, uh, you know, besides renting on top of that. Uh, the insurance, the homeowner's insurance is typically well, well over what a renter's insurance is, of course, because, you know, with renter's insurance, you're just covering your own personal possessions, whereas a homeowner's insurance, you're going to have to cover the roof, uh, the whole structure, everything like that. So it's typically uh, extremely, uh, quite a bit more expensive than just renter's insurance. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. 
Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Mm-hmm. And then one that I think is maybe overlooked by people when thinking about this decision is the opportunity cost of the equity. Because when you think about it, when you are spending upwards of tens of thousands of dollars on a down payment, that's money that you could have used to invest in your portfolio of stocks or something else. And so there is kind of that opportunity cost to investing in a home, even if it's for your residential property, it's not an investment property, but it's still something that could have generated return elsewhere. And so how do you kind of factor in that decision to the rent first buy? Sure. And like I said, that for a lot of people, that equity, uh, that equity buildup is a great thing. And that forced savings plan where they're, they're forced to save each month and build up that equity is something so many people need that wouldn't otherwise be able to save or, or make those investing decisions. Uh, what we find through data, uh, I mean, we've got data back to 1870 through a lot of these uh, indexes, but you know, it's, it gets muddied a little bit, I think, for different eras of home buying. I think if you go back 60, uh, 60, 50, 60 years, then you find that uh, that equity uh, or appreciation for home prices is closer to about 2%. When you're all set and done, really the uh, return on home ownership from not having to pay rent from minus, uh, you know, minus the property taxes, minus the maintenance, but then adding back in the home price appreciation, you usually make about 5%. A return on your investment, right? So that's the, uh, that's kind of the numerical benefit of owning a home. And uh, now, of course, just on the numbers though, you have to compare that against maybe a 7% uh, or even a 9% return on average, uh, for the stock market. So, you know, on the numbers, it, it doesn't necessarily always make sense to, to buy versus just taking that down payment and putting it in the stock market and then using your, using your money to rent. But that's really where that, that forced savings plan comes in that I think it's, it makes sense for a lot of people. I definitely agree with you on that. Once we have a goal, it forces us to put more money aside and maybe stick to our plan a bit more. I've also heard you talk about the Burl rule. Can you talk a bit about that? How is that kind of different than what we already talked about with the factoring on the, all the costs? Sure. Well, I, I think it's just a great common sense uh, rule for buying versus renting something. And this goes well beyond buying or renting your home. This can, can go into your car, transportation. I can go into many things, but it's basically a borough. So buy utility, rent luxury. And basically what it just means is anything that is uh, just that basic idea, that basic good that you need. Uh, some, a roof over your head, uh, transportation with no frills and no bells and whistles, then you buy that. You buy, if it's going to be just a very basic apartment that you need, a uh, you know, minimum, minimum number of rooms and, uh, and things that you need, not necessarily anything fancy, then that would be, uh, that would be a good buy decision, right? Whereas if it's a luxury, you know, if it is the pool out back, the, uh, the extra space that you may never really even use anyway, things like that, then you would rent that. And like I said, it goes down to your transportation. If you just need uh, that little, 
little cheap Toyota Camry to uh, to get back and forth to work, then then that's something you'd buy. If it's the Lamborghini that you've always wanted, then maybe you ought to rent it to see if you really uh, really need something like that, right? So it goes into the idea of uh, if you really need it, if it's you know just basic uh, and cost cost effective, then that's something you buy. If it's something that you don't necessarily need but you you've always wanted, go ahead and uh, you know rent it for a while to see see if you really really get the enjoyment out of it that you thought you would. I think that is a great rule of thumb for us to follow. And I was thinking about this. So we talked about all the financial factors, but there's so many non-financial factors and important considerations that we also need to think about that can weigh heavily on this decision. What are some that you can think of that are most applicable for millennials? Sure. Well, I think the most important idea is just to understand that this isn't a isn't a decision you have to make at any one point, right? Uh, there are different forces that that are playing on that buy versus rent decision that might mean that it would be better that yes, in the in the long run, it's better to buy versus rent for you. Maybe put it off for another year, right? Uh, we have seen with that increase in interest rates, buying is actually one and a half times more expensive than renting has been over the uh, you know over the past twenty or thirty years, right? Just because, again, as those interest rates have doubled uh, the mortgage interest over the last year, then it is so much more expensive. Rent has increased uh, on average across the United States and really internationally, but but not necessarily to keep up with the housing costs, right? Uh, houses have increased something like 40 to, to 50% over the last few years in the United States, and rent has only increased maybe at about 10% annual pace. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with those moratoriums, the, you know, the moratoriums on evictions in the United States. Uh, landlords couldn't evict people for non-payment of rent, so they weren't going to be they weren't going to be increasing the rent if they couldn't get anything or, or evict uh, tenants. So they increased the rent much more slowly. Uh, rent prices haven't kept up with those home prices, and uh, and that's really thrown that buy versus rent decision, the numbers anyway, out of whack, right? So it is now much more expensive to buy than it is rent. Obviously, that's something that's going to uh, to going to clear itself out. You know, rent prices will start to increase, and and in fact have already started to increase at a very fast clip for a lot of people. So those rent prices will increase. We'll probably see a little bit of drop in home prices, and that'll even out again to uh, to what we see over history, uh, right around even, right around parity. So I think a lot of people, you know, while you make that decision in your mind that hey, I want to buy a house, it's good for me, and you think that you have to, you know, go on Realtor.com and start looking for houses now, it is something that you can wait for maybe six months and uh, probably get it, find a lot better deal out there. So that rent increase, does it typically just keep up with inflation historically? Is that the more normal level compared to the 10% we saw? Uh, well, rent usually keeps up with uh, house prices a little bit closer than just inflation, right? If rent only kept up with inflation, then it would you would see a, a gap widening between rent and home prices, right? Because since home prices do t- typically keep up with inflation, plus that extra two or three percent, you know, on top of that for home price appreciation, and then you would see that gap widening between rent and home prices, and that shouldn't be that shouldn't be something that happens if you think about it, right? Because anybody that owns a home has two options: they can live in it or they can rent it out. Well, well, if you know if rent prices for any home fall so far be- below you know those uh, the the home prices, 
then nobody would rent a home, right? You know, it would just be more economical to buy a house or and put the put your money in the in the stock market because you wouldn't be getting enough rent, you know, to justify based on those home prices. Uh, so of course, you know, if nobody was renting houses, then that those rent prices would go up because that's a demand and a lower supply, and and things would tend to tend to even out. So what we find is over the long term, yes, those the rent prices tend to keep up uh, pretty much on par with uh, with home prices. Uh, and since that hasn't happened in the past few years, then then there is that imbalance where it's actually one and a half times more expensive to buy than it is to rent, uh, you know, on those on that one to one basis. Yeah. And so with this challenging, rising, high interest rate environment, it really kind of muddies that decision. And for people who maybe have the savings, they have that cash ready, it just still might not make economic sense to pay that high fix, even if you get a fixed mortgage or a variable because your betting rates will go down. It's still a hard decision. I saw this graph on LinkedIn where it showed a $600,000 house with a 3% interest rate, which was probably close to what it was a couple years ago, was a $2,024 payment per month. And then a $590,000 house in 2022, 7% interest rate now over $3,000 a month. So $1,100 difference just in a year. And that's just such a basic example of how, yeah, just the rise in interest rate can just massively reduce affordability. And it kind of, it's scary to think that even if interest rates go down now, especially in Canada, where we only have three or five year mortgages, it's maybe a bit different in the US where it can be 15 to 30. Those decisions really can make a difference in our affordability. Sure, sure. And it is scary to think that you're paying more and getting less. You know, in that example, the $600,000 house versus $590,000 house. But you can, you know, you can take all different kinds of examples. You can get the same house, you know, double those interest rates and you're still paying about $1,000 more in just interest alone each month, uh, $12,000 a year for the same house. Uh, like I said, it's really priced a lot of people out of the market. They're no longer able to consider buying a home because the home that they would have to buy and, you know, they, they just wouldn't be happy in because it would be so much smaller than maybe what they could have bought just a couple of years ago. So it, it is forcing really a change and a reassessment of what p- people think of uh, when they think of you know buying versus rent. And it is interesting the the uh, the difference in uh, mortgage terms between the U.S. and Canada. You know whether it's it's three to five years there uh, the the mortgage terms versus the fifteen or thirty years that are that are more common here in the U.S. Uh, a lot of people don't typically hold their mortgages for fifteen or thirty years. You know, generally they'll they'll refinance or you know get a get another loan on those uh, within you know five to seven years. So it's a little bit closer. But generally, uh, mortgage interest rates have to come down. I think it's a one and a half percent usually or one and a quarter percent to really make it uh, economically make sense to refinance your mortgage to cover a lot of those mortgage costs and things like that. So, you know, with mortgage interest rates at 7% now, then they would have to come down quite a bit down to about 6% for, you know, for to really make a difference for a lot of people that, uh, you know, have those 7% interest rates now. So one thing I kind of want to touch on with you now is the differences between choosing a variable versus fixed mortgage rate in the event where someone's ready to buy a home in the next year or two. How can we think about which makes more sense? We don't want to be trying to predict where interest rates are going to go. But in a sense, when you're buying a home, you kind of have to be forward thinking on which makes the most sense for you. How would you think about the pros and cons of each and think about that decision in today's environment? Sure, sure. Well, I, I think it's it's important again to say that uh, you know you don't have to make a decision uh, immediately. If uh, a lot of times with any big decision, you know, if you have to 
If you sit there and it causes you stress uh, to make that decision and, and you really don't know which way to go, then a lot of times that's kind of points to, you know, the, the idea that maybe you've already made a decision. Maybe you don't want to make that decision because, because one side is really just not something you want to do, but maybe you feel obligated to do it. I, I know a lot of people feel like, you know, you grow up, you, you go to school, you get married and you buy a home. And, you know, that's just a, one of those stepping stones in life that everybody does and it's right to do. Well, I, I don't want people to feel obligated that that should be their life decision or their life path, you know. Uh, so if, if that decision is really causing you any kind of a stress, then then I think that that kind of points to the idea that maybe you don't want to don't want to make that decision. Another important thing here is I think, like we said, there's nothing wrong with waiting six months to see kind of how things settle. Obviously, again, we are seeing you know the cost of buying a home is so much more expensive relative to, to renting has been over the last couple of decades. Then that has to come back down into a, a more one to one basis, right? We have seen such an increase in home prices uh, over the last couple of years. Rent has not kept up with that. So we are going to see, you know, higher rents and lower, lower home prices over the next year, probably maybe even two or three years, right? These, the, the real estate market tends to lag the stock market. So a lot of the crash that we've seen in, in stock prices, you know, and eventually maybe a recession next year. The, the real estate markets generally lags that. So you'll probably see weakness in home prices, you know, even, even six months to a year after the rest of the economy has rebounded. So I don't think it's something where you have to make a decision now. I think the odds really point to a favor of, of waiting, waiting on that decision, renting now and really, uh, you know, buying into the future when, when those prices do come down, when the interest rates come down a little bit. But again, it's also something that where you can, you can make an economic decision later on where maybe if you've locked in that 7% interest rate on on a loan then uh, then you can refinance it if you're in a long-term loan or if you're in a three to five year loan then of course uh, you know that's going to give you the opportunity to change those terms when that loan is up I think those are all great points and I think it is important to maybe remember that the neutral rate for the Fed is 2.5% and for Bank of Canada. So that is the goal. They want to get back there. So they're higher now. It's expected that they'll come back down. We don't know when, but those are the targets. And so I think like you mentioned, if you give yourself that buffer of 1.5% to 2% down, that might be a better time than right now for most people. And so the other thing that I kind of just wanted to go through with you is deciding between the term length, because we kind of talked about how no one sticks to or you don't actually keep your 15 to 30 year. I read something that said most people keep it 10 years and you said five to seven. So it's not the full length. But how should someone think about that decision? What are the factors that go into that? Sure. Of course, the biggest uh, factor in that is that is what you're saving on interest, you know, monthly interest as well as interest over the, the life of that loan. Is that going to save you enough to make up for, you know, the closing costs and, and all the costs to getting that new loan? Okay. That's the, that's obviously the first thing that ne- needs to be handled. Second is, you know, do you want to, do you want to be locked into that home for that much more time, right? If you're, if you've already sat on your loan for 10 years of a 15 year loan and you're, uh, you're going to be refinancing into another 15 year loan, do you want to be locked into that house, uh, you know, for that period of time? Are you going to be cashing out or are you going to be, you know, going to be keeping the same amount that you owe on the loan? So I think it, it really, it really depends on how much interest rates have changed and, and how that affects your monthly payment as well as the total interest that you're going to be saving. Uh, by refinancing. But, but again, generally it tends to be, you know, if interest rates have fallen within a percent to a percent and a half, then it usually does make sense to refinance a loan because you're going to be saving so much more on interest, uh, you know, over what you would have paid. One quick question on the interest. Is the total interest expense tax deductible then? 
It is if you itemize and it depends on the amount uh, of your home. I think uh, the tax changes over the last couple of years have changed that to where I think it's, uh, I want to say a $500,000 home or, or maybe a million dollars. I think there was a cap that they changed just a few years ago where you know you can deduct a certain amount of interest. So it, that varies by, by jurisdiction as well as uh, even states in some uh, for some state taxes and, and that kind of thing. So you know, be wary of where you are, as well as you know whether you itemize or not. You know, with the with the standard deductions going up for individuals, then a lot of a lot of people even that own their home and are you know paying those interests, they're still not itemizing their deductions, right? They're staying taking that standard deduction of I think it was something like twelve thousand seven hundred each uh, per person, you know, and just and just using that rather than itemizing different uh, charitable deductions, their interest, property taxes, things like that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. 
Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash MI. netsuite.com slash MI. That's netsuite.com slash MI. All right, back to the show. Okay, that's good to know because, I mean, we can do more research on it, but I was wondering if the total amount was tax deductible. Well, it is deductible, uh, you know, if you are itemizing, you know, your your deduction. So if your total interest per year is more than, I would say, uh, you know, seven or 8,000, you know, but plus, plus you've got the property taxes and, and other things, then you're probably going to be itemizing uh, your taxes, your deductions on your taxes, and that's going to save you money rather than just taking the standard deduction. So I also want to kind of end this video with talking about something fun in investing. Uh, one of your videos you recently did where you talked about seven monthly dividend stocks that can help pay your rent. And so I thought that was a perfect way to bring this episode home. Can you talk a bit about those dividend stocks? And maybe I think it's helpful in the context of these to talk about also how much money you have to invest to get enough money to pay your rent or the $2,000 that you talk about in the video. Sure. Well, and like you said, it's a great idea, right? A great theme to think that, you know, you can invest in dividend stocks, whether they're monthly or quarterly and use those to pay your bills. And it's, uh, there are some pitfalls to it. Uh, I think like you alluded to how much you have to have to invest in these, but it's a great way to build a portfolio, right? Uh, so most div- dividend stocks pay their dividends every three months. It's a quarterly basis. So you get those those dividends four times a year. But, but there are quite a few dividend stocks, uh, a few dozen dividend stocks and ETFs that pay on a monthly basis, right? That pay those those returns out each month uh, through a dividend check. Now, the uh, the yield is going to be different on a lot of those. Uh, normal dividend stocks, the average yield is right around 2 to 3%. Monthly dividend stocks tend to pay a little bit more because uh, investors are obviously attracted to those stocks because they are dividend and, and frequent dividend payers. So you can find yields of 5, 6, 7%, even more on a lot of those. So of course, if you, if you ever want to know how much, how much you need to invest in a stock to, uh, to get a certain amount out of cash, you know, each month or, or each year, then you just take the amount you need divided by the, uh, percent, the, the dividend yield, right? So if I needed a hundred dollars and the, uh, the dividend yield was 5% on a stock. Now, of course, that's an annual basis, right? So if I need a hundred dollars a month, I would actually be trying to figure out something for $1,200 total for the year, right? So 1200 divided by uh, 0.05 uh, would be 120 times two, it'd be $240,000, right? Which a lot of people look at that and they kind of shrug and just a minute, I need to pay, I need to invest 240,000, a quarter of a million dollars just to get, you know, $100 a month. And yeah, yeah, you know, that's the tragic reality that you're not going to get something for nothing. Uh, but it is something that, you know, over 10, 15 years, you can build up very easily by investing in these stocks, reinvesting the dividends. And then eventually when you are up to that $240,000 or, or what have you uh, in that portfolio, then you're getting you're getting hundreds of dollars a month uh, from those dividend stocks and you can use that to, to pay your bills. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great approach and a lot of people like that stable monthly income versus perhaps just relying on capital appreciation over the long term. So I guess what are some of your, maybe you don't have to name all seven, but maybe your top three dividend stocks that you love or that you invest in that pay a consistent yield and that you're kind of excited about long term? 
Well, uh, one, I guess, would be uh, maybe Stag Industrial. That's ticker S-T-A-G. It is a, a warehouse operator and owner uh, in the real estate space. It's not the highest dividend yield. It's a, a little bit lower, but uh, it is very consistent. And it's in one of the best growth themes for those for those dividends, right? All that, that the e-commerce, the growth in e-commerce means that all those those mailed uh, those mailed goods uh, f- by Amazon and whatnot have to be stored somewhere, and that's really filling up warehouse space across the United States and really internationally. So it's a uh, it's a great uh, great real estate sector to be in for that. Another great dividend stock that I like is a Medical Properties West. That's uh, ticker MPW. They actually own uh, healthcare facilities and doctors' offices, hospitals, things like that. It hasn't been doing very well this year just because of the differences in you know just some of the factors in those uh, hospital hospital uh, stocks and and healthcare. But it, again, it is a great long term trend to be in. Right, it actually pays a very high dividend yield of uh, close to almost ten percent on the stock uh, so you can make a high dividend yield it's a it's a stable long-term trend obviously we are only spending more for healthcare and they have they've got a great structure with their their leases right they lease their properties out they own hospitals they own doctors offices things like that and then they lease them back to the doctors and to the hospital companies on a triple net basis where it just means that the doctor the, the hospital pays all the expenses related to that property and then they just send the check of, of what's left over to uh to medical properties west right so um, the very low operating costs for for the company and they distribute a lot of cash flow uh, to to investors. So I like that one. I also like uh, AGNC, that's AGNC Investment Corporation. That's actually an, an MREIT, a mortgage REIT. So what they do is they sh- they borrow on long-term rates or borrow short-term rates, very low short-term rates, leverage that up and then buy mortgages uh, from that. So, you know, they are a very, very big and important mortgage buyer in the United States and they distribute almost all of that cash flow, you know, from the, uh, from the mortgage investments that they've made onto investors. So uh, another, another very strong uh, dividend stock. It's interesting that two of them were REITs. That's something that I've also been wanting to talk about on the show and bring someone on because REITs can benefit in interest rate environments to an extent, but then there's maybe that threshold where they don't perform as well. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about REITs? Are they a good diversifier in this environment or how do you think about them? Well, I love, I love REITs, uh, real estate investment trust, just as a way to, to get that exposure to real estate, right? It's a, an entirely different asset class apart from stocks, apart from bonds. And that's really what's important in owning those, those real estate stocks, right? Is that you do have something that isn't tied directly to stocks, isn't tied directly to bonds. You know, yes, they, uh, REITs tend to follow the stock market a little closer than, than direct ownership, actually buying commercial property. Uh, but they do give you that exposure to, uh, to commercial property prices. So it's a great smoother, uh, you know, diversified kind of smooth out the returns on your stock portfolio. But you're right, it, it can, um, you know, higher interest rates can affect those real estate properties and those real estate trusts because real estate is generally a very heavily leveraged, right? Uh, you you only put down maybe 10 or 20% or even uh, 30% at the most when you buy that commercial space or you buy that home. And so, you know, those that, that interest rate is the cost of borrowing that money. So it gets much more expensive to to buy and invest in real estate as those those interest rates go up. So what we typically see is, yes, as interest rates go up, then uh, real estate, you know, and real estate prices is hurt by that. You see a lot of these real estate investment trusts, these REITs, uh, the share prices come down and they suffer. And we've seen about a 20 to 25 percent decrease in the uh, in those REITs uh, this year on the prices. Right. But they're still very strong cash flow. They're still paying out those high dividends. And uh, again, it's something that 
you know, as as interest rates kind of level off and come back down to target rates, then you're just going to see a bounce back in that. So you're going to see that share price appreciation as well as uh, the continued dividends on those. So it's a you know it's a great way to get that exposure into real estate that uh, you know most people wouldn't have otherwise. If you don't have a couple hundred thousand dollars laying around to to buy a commercial property or to buy uh, you know a portfolio of real estate directly, then you can invest ten twenty dollars in a share of uh, you know a real estate investment trust. And I guess they also perform well. I think I said high interest rate environments, but what I meant was high inflation. Real estate typically performs better. And then when interest rates rise a bit, the thing I am wondering is the dividend yield on the medical properties one. So 10%, that is pretty crazy. But I also see, like you mentioned, that it has depreciated quite a bit from like highs of 21, 22 to now $12. So how much of that dividend yield is just due to that price drop, the uh, the drop in the denominator versus um, like increase in the dividend. Sure, sure. And of course, that's that's something you always need to look at when you're looking at a, a dividend stock is the dividend yield in relation to the price. Typically, uh, in the past, a medical properties trust has paid a, a lower, lower dividend yield. So upwards of 6% or right around there, 6, 7%. So it has, it has increased quite a bit because they are, uh, the stock price is significantly lower now. A big reason for that stock price, again, is just the overall healthcare sector. You know, what has happened to healthcare, uh, you know, healthcare services. Uh, we had some of the, uh, the larger hospitals hospital companies like United Healthcare, some of the other large hospital services kind of warn on a lot of their, their earnings and, and warned that, uh, you know, earnings were, were decreasing and the outlook over the next year was, was a little bit lower, right? So, so obviously that's hurt, you know, everyone in the healthcare space. Uh, but again, you know, these are the overall supply, the long-term supply demand picture for healthcare services, for healthcare real estate it is very strong and, you know, and it should support, you know, stocks like this and that healthy dividend yield. I'm glad that you mentioned this one. This one has actually been on my radar for a while. So I think that we will end that here. Thank you so much for coming on again, Joseph. For our listeners that want to watch your videos and learn more about you and your work, where can they go to find you? Sure. Love to see everybody stop by the, uh, the YouTube channel. Let's talk money. I uh, got a, a couple great videos on there. Uh, you know, one we, we talked, kind of talked about the buy versus rent video that I had on there, the uh, monthly dividend stocks to pay your rent video, as well as uh, a few just recently that, that I think are going to be really helpful, uh, talking about, you know, how to recession proof your finances and uh, how to invest in a recession. So stop by Let's Talk Money there on YouTube and uh, love to see you. That sounds great. I will make sure to link those all in the show notes. Thank you so much, Joseph. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There's a ton of useful educational resources on there, as well as our TIP finance tool, which is a great tool to help you manage your own stock portfolio. And with that, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.